Well, we haven't been in the book of Esther for a couple of weeks now because of just taking a break and, and seizing the day on some of the opportunities we had on the two previous Lord's Days. But to give us a bit of review, as we come back into the book of Esther, remember the book starts out by the king of Persia being scorned by his wife. Then he dumps her. Then he exercises what you could just call an empire-wide beauty pageant. And lo and behold, some lowly, orphaned Jewish girl wins the beauty pageant, which is a prize that nobody wanted because all it meant was that you are now the porcelain doll on the shelf in the Persian king's harem. But she has a cousin who's also her adoptive father named Mordecai. And at the same time that she gets put at the throne, Mordecai overhears a plot that people are going to try to kill the king. He hears it, tells Esther, she tells the king, and the king's life is saved. And in response to that, Haman, somebody else that we don't even know yet, he gets exalted the second place in the kingdom. Mordecai gets overlooked and forgotten, seemingly. But Haman, who gets exalted to this high level, he hates Mordecai, even though Mordecai does nothing but what is good and right and true. And because he hates him so much, because Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, Haman gets this genocide of Mordecai and all his people, the Jews, approved by the king. And there's a date set. There's a one-day, 24-hour hunting season on this one people group. Mordecai then, so distraught, tells Esther, you have to go and speak on our behalf. You have to go and speak to the king on our behalf. That's a scary thing to do because if you go into the king's presence without being summoned, you could just be killed because you might be an assassin. Even his own wife is suspect in that situation. So she boldly approaches the king. And she's received welcomely and warmly. Then she decides to host a banquet instead of asking for what she wanted right there in the presence of many swordsmen and uh, military men and officials who are lackeys to the king. She says, let me get the king away and invite Haman. So she has that first banquet. And at that first banquet, she doesn't request for the freedom of her people. She instead just says, will you come to another banquet tomorrow? Now, in between those two banquets, Haman walks out the door picking his teeth, tipsy on wine, and Mordecai will not show deference to him again once he's outside that banquet. And then he says, that's it. He goes home. His friends and wife can convince him, we're going to hang him. So you're going to go tomorrow and ask to have Mordecai killed before the set date. Have that happen. So he builds these gallows that are 75 feet high that are... uh, uh, that's several stories of a building high and they don't hang with a rope in Persia at this time. They skewer you. You're impaled on that pole. That's what it means to be hung. So it's just a 75 foot spear sticking out of the ground. But wouldn't you know also while that construction is happening, the king can't sleep that night. And then he asked his assistant to read him the uh, essentially the, the legal minutes of what's been happening in the kingdom. And it goes back five years to the exact date when, ha- when Mordecai saves the king's life. And he says, anything ever been done for Mordecai? And the guy goes, no, never has. Well, let's do it tomorrow. Mordecai, and then Haman runs up to the king's palace that morning and he says, come on in. Hey, what do you want me to do for the one that I really want to honor? And he lays out this whole big plan and, Morde- and he says, great, go do that for Mordecai. And so that horrifying moment is what happens. And then right after Haman has had to hold the reins of the king's horse while Mordecai wears the king's robe on the horse and paraded through town saying, this is what has happened to those whom the king delights to honor. Then he gets yanked by eunuchs right from that moment into Esther's second banquet. 
That's where we pick it up this morning. And we know that the key concept of the book of Esther is the providence of God, the sovereign hand of God working all things together according to his plan. God's name never appears in these 10 chapters, but that's on purpose so that you see him everywhere. And you attribute everything because everything is just so perfectly coincidental. And it could never work out this way if there was not some supreme divine being working things towards a particular plan. And we know that it actually did happen because the Jewish people still exist. They weren't genocided in the whole Persian Empire. They're still here. So obviously this happened. So we look at this and we see the providential hand of God everywhere. Now, our text today, there's a biblical principle that's often neglected. It's easy to neglect. And it's this. It's concept of God will not be mocked. Look at Galatians 6, 9, 6, 7, rather. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now, if you're trying to understand what does mock mean, we see people mock God all the time. This means ultimately. This means God will not be tricked. God will not be hustled. He will not be gamed. He will not be subverted. Ultimately, that will never be happened. He can't be, if you're going to go deep in the East Texas wood, bamboozled, hoodwinked, or boondoggled. Can't, can't happen. To he, no one will beat the system. And we see that happen all the time, all the way down from, from politics to filing your taxes to being in college. When I was in college at Texas A&M, I majored in beating the system, not studying. I just quit even buying books. I just worked the system. See, there's a website called Pick a Prof, and it would just, everybody would tell, it's like Yelp for professors. And you would go and see, and I would only pick the ones that had four multiple choice tests and no finals. Because I'm a pretty good guesser, and I can guess my way to a B most of the time. So I would pick those, and then I got to where I'd mastered what's called the ad drop system. I would sign up for way more classes than I intended to take, go to all of them that first week, and then get online and figure out which ones were better. And because a professor said, ah, he seems pretty mean, or she seems to have to require a lot of work, drop that, add that perfect set schedule every semester. Then I would start watching the professor's patterns. Well, this seems like this guy, every time the class before the test, he reviews it, and everything that he reviews is on the test. Therefore, I only need to go to class that day. I don't need to go any other days. And then I would monitor, like, well, you know, this professor really likes interaction. So I'm not going to read the book, but I'll show up for class, open the book to the reading assignment, read the first sentence, and just raise my hand. You know, what was the author talking about when they said this? And they would always go, wow, really, really good question. Really great perception there. Let's talk about that. And then everybody else had to answer that, and I didn't. Or you just would find the smart kid in the class who actually read the book. And right before you walk in, hey, Steve Tang, that was the kid that was in most of my classes. We just tell me what this book was about. And he did. So I would make it. So I got a degree and learned nothing. That's the moral of the story, kids. But nobody can do that with life. See, that's where God will not be mocked. For God is omniscient and omnipotent you cannot sow rebellion sin selfishness conceit wickedness and then reap 
eternal life and blessing from God. You, you cannot. I sowed laziness and con man artistry and I reaped a college degree, but that is not how God works. He's omniscient and he's after hearts, not just filled out scantrons. See, Haman has been sowing seeds of malice, murder, and mayhem for years now in the, in the book of Esther. He will not reap blessing, satisfaction, and prosperity. See, as the old country song goes, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And he will not be mocked. So look at the text in verses 1 through 6, Esther's second banquet here. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, so this is kind of after the big show is over, they're just kind of finishing off with these bottles of wine. The king says, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It'll be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half my kingdom. Third time he said that, offered that to her. And everybody knows that he's offered that to her. He can't now not deliver. Because now he looks like a fool. So he has to save faith. Whatever he says or whatever he's offered, she, and then she requests, he, she has to go with it. And then she says this, if I have found favor in your sight. See that found favor? That, that coupling or that idea is replete throughout the book of Esther. And most of the time, it's because Esther has found favor by doing nothing. She finds favor by just being beautiful. And then she finds favor by just behaving godly. And so this finding favor, she says, if I have done that indeed, O king, and if it pleased the king, remember, if it pleases the king, here's what I want. Can I just live? That's the request. Let my life be granted to me for my wish. And you also said I can make a request and my people's lives. That's my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That's word for word what Haman's got the king to sign off on. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She repeats directly, exactly what the edict says down in the public records. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. If you had just sold us as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. That, that's, we've been that before. And we, we'll, we'll be that again. And you would have not lost any money, actually, because we'd have been here working for you for free. I would have kept silent if that were the case. But that's not the case. We've been sold to be slaughtered. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, verse 5, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? We have to see the buffoonery of the king, right? Uh, Didn't I sign some kind of, maybe this is related. He's... Again, we have to see in the book of Esther this running theme of that God allows and places doofuses in positions of huge power all the time. And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman, of course, is terrified before the king and the queen. She pleads for her lives. The king is whipped up to an emotional height. Who would dare do this? And then now here's Esther's moment of courage. You have got it on the one inch line and you got to punch it in to the end zone. And that's where you find out if you have a backbone of steel or jello. And she comes right to it and says, it's him right here. That I mean, imagine, has she been playing this over and over in her head? 
this moment, since Mordecai asked her to do this, I'm eventually going to have to make the accusation. And then she contrives very wisely this banquet scenario and then having it double up like that. Now the king is doubly responsible to come through on what he promised. Then she has to point him out right there. She's still a woman. She's still without protection. She's still a orphaned Jewish girl. Haman could have hopped up and run her through right there. Or the king could have said, I, what in the world? You are one of those people? Well, yeah, get out of here. So she came through. She identifies with her people boldly and courageously. And Haman is horrified. He knows what he did. And he knows Mordecai knows what he did. And he knows that he just got done. He just washed his hands from pulling Mordecai's horse through the whole town of Susa. He knows what's happening. And then the king, verse 7, arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. So the king can't handle it. And it's not that he just needs a place to go and cool off. He's realizing that he's an idiot. He has to walk outside and sort through this. Oh, man, I signed that thing. I didn't even go to think who these people are. Haman never says it's the Jewish people. He just says there is a people who don't follow your rules. They follow another set of rules. And he goes, yeah, sure, do that. He didn't even think to say, where did I get my wife, my most favorite of all of the harem? Where's she from again? Who are her people? And then now he's promised Esther up to half my kingdom. And he signed this law that can't be repealed. He's realizing that he is an idiot. He's going outside to figure out a way to deal with this. So he just barges outside the, out the doors into the garden area. And then Haman immediately turns to Esther begging for his life. That's what he does. Haman stayed to beg for his life. Now he's facing the king's wrath. As he said, for he saw harm was determined against him by the king. Now she's his only hope for life. Isn't that a reversal? Haman thinking that he's the most powerful of all. Now he's groveling before a lowly Jewish orphan woman. She's the key to life. Isn't it funny how Esther's always playing in that role? This most unlikely, this weak, this most powerless person has the, the keys of life in her hands. And Haman is now forced to have to deal with that. And then now there's this providential cloistering happening. Cloistering, you know what I mean by like everybody being stuck in the same place. This providential cloistering is happening in verse 8 when it says, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? This is the scenario. There is a law in Persia that no man can be alone in a room with any member of the king's harem. That can't happen at all. Even with other people around, no adult man who's not a eunuch can get within seven feet of any member of the king's harem. That's a law. And so then when the king walks back in, still perplexed, still under the conundrum of what he's having to deal with, what's Haman doing? He has collapsed. He's fallen on the couch that, that Esther is sitting on. He's, he's in her lap begging for his life. Because he had two options, run out the door and follow the law of don't be in the same room. But then that makes me look super guilty. 
when you're charged of this and then you bolt, well, then, yeah, that, that's definitely you're you're guilty. Or he can go out with the king. Go that direction. That's pretty risky, too, because he's very mad at you. Then to stay in there, he decides, well, I'll just throw myself on her. But then what it does is it gives the king a perfect out. It looks like he's assaulting my wife. He's sexually assaulting my wife in front of me. So, of course, I could kill him. And there's no problem done. I can save, kind of save face here a little bit and not look so pathetic. And then what happens and the, as the word, in that uh, like a, a, a big picture, as the word left the mouth of the king, as it's still flying through the air, CIA black bag comes over Haman's head and he gets yanked out right then. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. God places this guy right here who just goes, hey, Haman just built a really, really nice gallows just right over there at his house. And the king says, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Haman rushed to have those gallows built last night for Mordecai. I mean, the the concrete hadn't even really fully set yet on the base of those things. And less than 24 hours later, they're instruments of his death. Mordecai can now pray with David in Psalm 57, 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. What Haman didn't believe, he now knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, he does not rule the earth. God does. He does not command his own destiny. God does. He is not the captain of his own ship. God is. And now the harrowing prophecy that his all too loving wife in chapter 6, verse 13 said has come completely true. Now Haman is skewered 75 feet in the air. Everybody can see it. Nobody can miss it. It's 75 feet high. And this should never have happened this way, right? The king's most trusted official is not supposed to die like this. He's not supposed to be, after just minutes of an accusation, immediately killed by the king, especially when he's never done anything to oppose or subvert the king in any way. That's, he's never done that. He's always been the king's boy. He's supposed to get a hearing. He's supposed to get the benefit of the doubt. But all he got was a swift death because Proverbs 16, 9 is true. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Haman craftily worked his way up the ladder in the perfect sequencing, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, there's some key principles, principal truths that we can pull from this text. Stories of the scripture, they reveal the truths of God to us. When we see these stories, we don't just merely take away, don't be Haman and be a bad guy. There are truths that God places in here. There's theology in narratives. So much of the Bible is narrative because we think and relate in stories. And God knows how to communicate to his people. One of the most arrogant things that you could possibly say is, who are we to understand this? I mean, who are we to say, I know exactly what this is? That sounds humble, but really it's the most pompous thing in the world. God, who is infinite and our creator, cannot communicate to us in a way that we can understand. 
That's what we're really saying. We're like, oh, who am I to say what this says? No, we're supposed to understand what this says. And stories encase theology, biblical truth for us. And it affects our lives. Theology is not dry and dusty discipline for nerds that are stacked behind books in dusty old libraries. It's for us. And we can find it here in stories because theology affects our lives. It affects Ahasuerus' life and Haman's and Mordecai's and Esther's lives. True things about God affect our lives because God is reigning and ruling and providentially governing for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So let's look at a few of these. The first that we need to look at is that God is our avenger. God is our avenger. Now, there's a most unpopular title for God, and it's the title of judge. So we had Paul read Psalm 94. God as judge. The natural man doesn't like this, doesn't want to hear about it. God as father, God as healer, God as provider. Yes, God as judge. Now you take that hateful garbage somewhere else. We don't want that. Yet the Bible is clear. Psalm 75, verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness. Why? For God himself is judge. He is the judge. He alone bears authority to enact justice. He alone declares who and what is right or wrong. He upholds the eternal law because the eternal law springs forth from his character. It's a reflection of who he is. And what's even more unpopular is Christ as judge. See, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he gives out hugs and not justice. In modern evangelicalism, nevertheless, the Bible is clear. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus judges the living and the dead. Acts 10.42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he So Jesus commanded us, apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. If Jesus is God and God is judge, then Jesus has to be judge. In the economic roles of the Trinity, the Father commissions the Son to be the judge of all humanity. Now, what does that have to do with Esther chapter 7? does so in these ways, that it's not just a most unpopular role of God, but it is a most necessary role of God. What happens without justice? What happens? Anarchy, chaos, evil, suffering. Who wins when there is no justice? Only the strong. Who always loses? The vulnerable, the weak, the mild. If God really is not judged, then we must fear every Haman that comes along. We have to. We have to tremble before those guys. That means that then that if God is not judged, every election in America is live or die. Because there is no one else. So we have to do everything we can to get our guy in the chair. Everything is live or die if God is not judged. It means that somebody must rise up to fill that role, but no one can fill that role because nobody else is omniscient, omnipotent, all good and all loving. See, our problem with this role of God as judge is twofold. We want justice defined differently for us 
I want justice defined differently for me. And I want God to work for me. The judge works for me. But justice is not situational, circumstantial, flexible, nor customizable. It is one size fits all. You ever buy those hats? Those hats are lies to me. My head is huge. It's never one size fits all, but that's how justice is. And the judge answers to the law, not the body politic. He answers to the law. The law is a perfect reflection of God's moral character. But what does God as judge do besides just bringing a bit of order and a bit of hope in a chaotic world that seems like it's run amok? What it does is that it gives his people rest. God as judge, because God as judge is a blessing to us, us, his church. He brings order to a chaotic world. There is somebody at the helm, and he is God, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. That God is at the helm. You read a book like Esther and you think, if there is no God, then this can never happen again. This is a one in a bazillion chance that it works out like this for the vulnerable people in the story. But the point is that we see God in everything. There's just too many coincidences. So it gives our people rest. It gave Mordecai rest. Remember that, chapter 4? If you don't speak, then justice will come from somewhere. It just won't be because you participated in it. It will happen. It brings Mordecai rest even in the midst of his grief. See, we don't have to take justice or the law arbitrarily into our hands. What did Mordecai not do when the edict comes down that there's a hunting season on the Jewish people for a whole day? You can slaughter them with impunity. What he didn't do? He didn't run through the streets of Susa gathering up all the Jews saying we have to storm the capital right now. He didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't go to Esther and say, here's what we got to do. God put you in the position being that close to the king so that you can poison him and kill him. He didn't do that either. What did he do? He said, Esther, you have to go and use your position to plead to the king to stop this. Going through those channels. Why? Because God is judge, not Mordecai. Not Mordecai. But God, he is the avenger and Mordecai trusted that. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Read that again for the people in the back that might be asleep. Never avenge yourselves. But what do we do? We leave it to the wrath of God. Why do we leave it to the wrath of God? Because it's written in the Old Testament vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. If God says something is his, and he's not sharing it, then it means it's not yours. So we don't take vengeance. In fact, we never avenge ourselves. God is avenger, and we leave it to him. I mean, how do we do that? The, the book of Psalms, I had Paul read Psalm 94, and what we're going to look through is Psalm 7 here very quickly. When you see the book of Psalms, you're seeing mostly David, but a few other authors just pour out their hearts and work out life in a sinful world before you. You're getting their divinely, spiritually inspired prayer journals of real people going through real problems. So look at Psalm 7 and see how somebody like David, and this is a psalm about Benjamite, which is, who's a Benjamite? Mordecai. So we connect these things and we'll see at the very end how it certainly connects to Haman. But how he works through this, 
God is judge, but yet there is real pain and real suffering here in my life. Verses 1 through 2, we see fear in the presence of wicked men. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So knowing that God is judge or living the Christian life doesn't mean that we say evil doesn't exist and I'm just ignoring it. No, evil does exist and it does cause us to fear. Look at David's heart. They're going to shred me like a lion. We can really suffer, really be hurt, really be afflicted and oppressed, and our lives can really be wrongfully threatened. But what do we do? Verses 3 through 5, there's an awareness of our own sinfulness first. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy... Pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. When your suffering is the first response that you have often, did I bring this on myself, God? And that should be our prayer. Lord, root into my heart. And if I did this, if I deserve this, we all deserve pain and suffering, but deserves it in the immediate context. I sinned and this is the consequence of that. And when we do that with our kids all the time, no, that's what happens when you do that. You can't say, woe is me. You did it. So this is the heart of David saying, first, before I pray anything else about them, I have to look at me. Did I bring this upon myself? Am I suffering because I deserve it? A humble Christian will admit this possibility readily all the time and then ask God to search his or her heart to purge that iniquity. And be willing to suffer the consequences, as David just said. But if you get to the other side of that heart work and think and realize and say like Job, I have not sinned in order to deserve this in the immediate cause and effect, not in the ultimate cosmic reality of being a sinner against God, but in the immediate cause and effect. Then we move on to verses 6 through 11. Confidence in the Lord is judge. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness that he has in Christ. According to the integrity that is in me. Meaning I have not sinned in a reciprocal way right here. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So what does David do first? He calls on God to act, not God bless my actions that I've already decided to take. God, you rise up and you do this. This is David. I mean, imagine David in the life that he's living. He's anointed king, but Saul is still king and God didn't remove him. So he's just got to wait until God resolves that. Now you have to do that. I can't do it because I'm not you. It's not upon me to raise up or put down kings. He has to let it go. God does have fury for evildoers, but he has appointed a time for judgment. We wait for his timing and that hurts 
That's that's scary. That's that's stomach churning like Esther and Mordecai for those years of it happening and waiting for all those moments. But God will bring an end to evil. We can pray for that. The, the, the mushiness and the prevailing doctrinal statement of most evangelical churches of just be nice. That's the, that's the only doctrine. Be nice means we can never pray for God to end evil. But the Bible says we pray for that all the time. End evil. We can pray for that. What kind of father or protector would he be if he never addressed evil? If you are the father and the protector of your household and you let it be robbed, you let your kids and your wife be assaulted, you are a failure. You are living in wickedness. So if God does that, if God has no justice for wickedness and evil, then he is not a God that we should pray for or pray to, let alone father and protector, let alone judge or king. If a judge won't execute justice and if a king won't keep order in his land, they're pathetic. But God will bring it into it. He is a righteous judge and we are not. We let him be our shield and we cling to him for salvation because we have an assurance of a righteous verdict. Verses 12 through 17. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the same hole that he has made. And here's the Haman verse. His mischief mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. God will not be mocked, not by Haman, not by anyone. He will execute judgment upon the wicked. Evildoers, wicked people, the unrepentant, they will not escape. They will not succeed in their scam. They will not work the system. They can't game it. They can't change it. They can't hoodwink the judge. See also Haman the Agagite in real life. But what does that mean for us? Because we're all Hamans. The the, the wrong posture to take is that I'm Mordecai in this story. I want to be, but I'm a Haman. That's my heart. I'm born Haman. So now what do I do? Because the judge is also the king. And the God of creation judges his creation, but he's the king and he rules over his creation. He makes justice. He meets out justice, rather, to rebels and criminals. And he's the one against the rebellion and the crime has happened. In our text, it says that King Ahasuerus was enraged when he became aware of the murderous plot against his bride. And when did the king's anger subside? What does it say in verse 10? After he was hung, then the wrath of the king abated. Like any good husband, like a decent husband, you protect your wife and you take swift action to eliminate the threat. The king in Esther 10 is also acting as judge. He just immediately says it and then it happens. Once the criminal has been served, then the king's anger subsides. It goes away. Now we know that God, as our king, has righteous wrath against all the Hamans. We know that. Verse Psalm 5, 4 through 5, For you are not a God 
This is the psalmist speaking directly to God. You're not a God of delights and wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So then how will his anger towards me subside? How do I get away from that? A death must occur. How did the king of Persia, how did his anger subside? How, did his, how was his wrath abated? A death occurred. A death occurred and then it went away. How will God's wrath and God's anger subside? A death will occur. See, but here's humanity's greatest conundrum. In the story, not as a perfect illustration, but the book of Esther, we're the king's bride and Haman. We're under threat of dying either way. We can't die for ourselves. Either the king destroys us in his anger, this, this edict, or we destroy ourselves on Haman's pole. Unless a singular death occurs in our place. Somebody else dies. Like Haman dies in a sense, and Esther risked death in a sense for the good of the people. Unless a singular death occurs in our place, then we must suffer the wrath of God. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that substitution. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Also translated, in the, if you have a New American Standard, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. A death that abates the wrath of God, but it's not ours. Not our death. Romans 5.10 explains it like this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? We were his enemies, we were, but we were reconciled to him. How did that happen? By the death of his son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Haman's death placated the king's wrath. And it stopped the sanctioned genocide against the Jews, which we're going to get to how that happens in coming chapters. But it didn't do anything for Haman. Christ's death, on the other hand, on our behalf, placates God's wrath against us and gives us eternal life because he was God and man, judge and king. In our stead, Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God shows his love or demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for you? When you were working on it? When you were cleaning yourself up? When you were the worst that you could possibly be? That's when. And since, therefore, verse 9, we have been justified by his blood, meaning assuming that all who have repented and believed have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, the king's wrath goes away because somebody else died so that you didn't have to. Somebody's going to have to die for the wrath to go away. It can either be you or it can be Christ. That's how it gets resolved. And because Jesus is judge and king, that makes him also savior. He has authority to declare us not guilty and to royally pardon us in his love. Look at Isaiah 32 or 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's not typically how we pitch it. We don't say, here's how great God is. This is why you should be a Christian. Because God is, he is the Lord. He is the lawgiver. He's the judge and the king. That's not normally our sales pitch. But that's the only one who has any authority to deal with your sins. 
When we pitch God or, or Jesus as just kind of a, 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 an emotional guidance counselor, that's great. He's sad. You're sad. He'll nuzzle up next to you. But he can't do anything about your status. He has no authority to do anything. But if he is, as Isaiah 33, 22 says, judge, lawgiver, and king, now he can save us. Because if that one dies to satisfy himself, do you, do you think about that when you think about the crucifixion? God sacrificed himself to satisfy himself for the benefit of all of us. All who repent and believe. Because he has authority to do so as judge, lawgiver, and king. That's the one who saves us. We have to come with that message. The one with all of authority, that's the one who saves. So as we look to apply these truths from Esther 7, let's consider our charge. See, Esther was put in the place of queen of the known world, and it wasn't for herself, right? Haman or Mordecai told her that. This is not for you. God did not put you here just to save your bacon. He puts you here for, for us. So the same way we are not saved by God for ourselves. Certainly we are in the palace. Certainly we are loved of God. But we are converted to become agents of reconciliation. Look at this passage that we can't not see and then we'll be done. Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. So that's who you are. If you're in Christ, what you were is gone. And you are something else now. So there's no kind of carnal Christian idea. You're kind of saved. You're mostly saved. It says right there, the old is gone. The new is here. That's what I am. And if that's what I am, then what am I to do? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. All this is from God. Not you. This is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's how he reconciled us. We caused the problem and God fixed it. He reconciled us to him through Jesus and then he gave us something. What does it say? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the greatest of all blessings for the judge and the, and the chair at the bar to say, I'm not going to consider any of your sins at this trial. That means you walk free. But that's what we've been given, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the reconciled, the message of reconciliation. He's given it to us. He didn't give it to anybody else. Nobody else knows it. Nobody else has it. So if we don't share it, nobody else will. Therefore, we are ambassadors, agents for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Can we see that? All of this, the book is called Esther. And the appeal to the king is through her. How do we not see ourselves? God's making his appeal to the lost through us. This ministry of reconciliation... We implore you, meaning Paul and his, his compadres writing this letter, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's got to be first. Before you go out and do anything, you have to be reconciled to God first through Christ. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the judge has done for us. That's what the king has done for us. That's what our God has done for us. How could we not go? How could we be Esther and have the good news and know what it is and then just not do anything, not say anything? So we go. He's speaking. The message is coming, making his appeal through us. So let's go forth with this clear commission for God's eternal glory because he is lawgiver, king, and judge, and he will save us. Father in heaven, we look at our brother and our sister, Mordecai and Esther, and we see real people who were thrust into situations they did not choose, circumstances that they did not want, and they didn't complain. They didn't, woe is me. They didn't try to find their way out. Lord, when we get thrust into situations that we didn't cultivate or desire, we complain. I complain. Want something better. I want a customized life. But Lord, we look at Esther and Mordecai, and they got the opposite of whatever they wanted or drew up. We thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for giving us examples enshrined forever in, in the Holy Scriptures throughout the centuries and the millennia to be able to see just normal people be scared, do horrifying things, and yet you working, or you proving that your hand is on the wheel, that you are conducting every minute of every day in every country, in every civilization, every grain of sand that's blown by any breeze or footstep of an animal, you know how far that grain of sand is going to blow and when it's going to move again. You are directing everything from the top to the bottom. And Lord, yet our hearts are often filled with fear and anxiety. Lord Jesus, we thank you for instructing us. Places like Matthew 6 to not be governed by fear because look at what you do. You, you know the hairs on our heads. You know how many times a little sparrow is going to hop up and down on the ground. Surely we're worth more than them. Or may we see your role as judge, as king, as sovereign, ruler, conductor, and orchestrator of all things that happen as a cause for rest, that that becomes the pillow we lay our head on at night. That's what gives us comfort and ability to sleep knowing that the world will keep spinning on its axis and our lungs will keep breathing as we're sleeping, that we can wake up and realize that you did not need us to keep everything going. And instead of causing fear, let that just be an overwhelming tidal wave of comfort and rest. And may we not, though we have great comfort and rest, become lazy and comfortable May we take what you've given us, this ministry of reconciliation, and always be willing to be used as you make your appeal through us. Or we know that you are pleased still to save many. We want to be useful in that. Lord, we, we want to be, we'll, we'll fumble. We, we know that we'll say wrong things or we'll get nervous and we'll be you know, unduly afraid. But Lord, we want to be faithful. So have us be a, a stumbling and 
uh, mumbling mess at times, but to be faithful as ministers of reconciliation who have the only good news that you've given it only to us, only to your church. May we be faithful like that. May we see our sister Esther who had the only message of salvation for the people and she identified with her people, identified herself with you, had been living in secret, but came out at that moment and saved a multitude. Lord, we certainly see Christ in that image, but we see our own duty there as well, that we can be used to, to save whoever it is that you are drawing to yourself that are in our circles. Lord, may we be an encouragement to each other along those lines. May that, may that fill our conversations as we talk to one another in the church and in gatherings and in our, even when we're outside and just being friends we would talk about those that we're sharing the gospel with, that we would encourage one another as we continue to do so, that we would build one another up as we study your word, as we purge sin from our lives and we put on more of Christ and Christ-likeness. May we, the church, be the church in discipleship and evangelism. And that can only happen if you empower us to those ends and you continue to keep us straight from elders and deacons all the way down to our littlest children. Or may we be found faithful in your sight. And may we pray these prayers of David that we can trust in the shield of our salvation, that we exalt in the righteousness of God. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for your plan of substitution. Thank you for sacrificing yourself to satisfy yourself that we might not ever taste the second death. And we are just a people full of gratitude. And it's in Christ's name that we gratefully pray. Amen.